Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Tonight on The Readout. You come saying I had made my mistakes, but now I want to change my life. If I hear you correctly, it sounds like you're crying out for a new normal, for us getting back to normal. And I'm hoping that the things you said today will help us begin to get back there. The late, great chairman, Elijah Cummings, in 2019, speaking to and about Michael Cohen, the ex-Trump lawyer who testified this week before the grand jury investigating Trump's hush money payment to a porn actress. Cohen's attorney, Lanny Davis, joins me in a few moments for his first TV interview in the case. Also tonight, a major development in the criminal investigation of Trump's mishandling of classified documents. As a judge orders Trump lawyer Evan Corcoran to testify, ruling that he cannot invoke attorney-client privilege. Plus, Ron DeSantis allegedly chooses his fingers as the spoon of choice for his chocolate pudding. It's just one of the weird, strange tales of the would-be presidential candidate who apparently likes political stunts and performative hate politics. But people, not so much. And we begin the readout tonight with the man who assisted Individual One with a hush money payment to an adult film star in the waning days of the 2016 presidential campaign. When it was ultimately determined, and this was days before the election, that Mr. Trump was going to pay the $130,000. In the office with me was Alan Weisselberg, the chief financial officer of the Trump Organization, he acknowledged to Alan that he was going to pay the 130000 and that Alan and I should go back to his office and figure out how to do it. Trump's longtime personal attorney and fixer Michael Cohen testifying before the House Oversight Committee in 2019 about his role in orchestrating the scheme that ultimately sent him to prison. Well, now it could be Donald Trump's turn to face the music, as it appears increasingly likely that Trump will be indicted by Manhattan D.A. Alvin Bragg, who's been investigating the case. If that happens, Cohen will likely be the key witness for the prosecution. And you can expect that Trump and his allies will escalate their attacks on Cohen and that it will get personal and ugly. Already, we've heard from many legal analysts, as well as from members of Team Trump, who call Cohen a flawed witness and say that relying on him as the linchpin of the case could prove highly problematic for the prosecution if, if, if it happens, as many believe that it will as soon as next week. And joining me now for his first interview since Michael Cohen completed his grand jury testimony is Cohen's attorney, Lanny Davis. It is good to see you. Nice to be here, Joy, in person. Yeah, in person. I know. It's it's a new thing. We're, we're kind of in normal-ish world again. Um, let's go through this, because the the attacks on your client have been pretty vicious for now. I'm, I'm assuming they'll get worse. Um, Donald Trump called him a rat multiple times. Um, his lawyer, uh, Trump, uh, Joe Tacopina, attacked him and said um, he's a fraud, he's a liar, he's a convicted perjurer in the in Trump world and outside of the Trump world. That's sort of this, this, the, the preview to what we're going to see. 
But when people say that he would have a credibility problem in front of a jury, that he would be a liability to the prosecution, they're talking about him pleading guilty to crime. So I want to go through with you what those crimes are, because it begs the question, right? What did he plead guilty to? He pleaded guilty to tax evasion, making false statements to a federally insured bank, causing an unlawful corporate contribution, making an excessive campaign contribution, and making false statements to Congress. I want to go through them one by one. Let's talk about the tax evasion case. Um, did he, he pleaded guilty to it, so he did it. So uh, he pled guilty uh, when he was coerced on a Friday afternoon. His lawyer told him that on Monday he would be indicted with his wife on this completely concocted and baseless tax claim, as well as all the other counts. And he wouldn't have an opportunity to meet with the prosecutor. So they gave him from a Friday afternoon to Monday to decide whether to plead guilty. So the guilty plea on that issue was coerced. Mm -hmm. And I can prove to you that there was no even slight evidence of a tax fraud What's claim. the proof of that? Well, let's start with the fact that H&R Block, we all know, is an expert on tax. One out of 150 million people in the last year that this was uh, done by H&R Block uh, are criminally prosecuted. Uh, most people in the millions of dollars of not paying taxes are treated in civil. There was literally nothing that the prosecution presented as evidence of tax criminal fraud. If in $1.3 million is the amount of money, tens of millions of dollars have been settled civilly is all that was alleged against Michael. And that was spread over five years and created five counts. So there was something about the prosecution case that was so concocted that had he gotten his day in court, it probably uh, would have been dismissed before he ever had a trial. Right. Let's go on to this this question of this HELOC, that he took a this HELOC. Is the silliest one of all. Okay, we're going to go into it. So this is him using a HELOC, for those who don't know. It's essentially use the equity in your own home, sort of borrow from yourself. And he used that money um, to pay Stormy Daniels this $130,000. So th this is why the cook... Uh, case of the Southern District, we were told by Jeffrey Berman, the U.S. attorney, that he got a phone call from Trump's attorney general interfering in the Cohen case. So there's something wrong here. When you take your own money, you draw down $130,000 at Donald Trump's instruction, which is what the Southern District published in a filing. He instructed Michael to pay that $130,000 to avoid the Stormy Daniels affair coming out, alleged affair, right before the election for political reasons. That's what the federal prosecutor said. Now they're saying $130,000 with $8 million of equity in his apartment. That's his money. And he drew down $130,000 because Trump didn't want to be involved or have any connection. He wanted, he wanted a separation from the How is it possible that $130,000 with $8 million of equity behind it could possibly be a crime? Now, they're claiming that the, the lie to the bank is about the valuation, about how much equity he really had. Actually, they're not claiming that. They're claiming that he had written down a somewhat mistaken assessment of uh, assets in another venue. But yeah. banks don't care about what you write down on a bank statement. If yeah. you've got equity and if you don't pay back your own money, they don't care either. But they've right. got the equity. It's a completely absurd and is never it would be dismissed had it ever gone to trial. But as I said, they said to him on a Friday afternoon through his lawyer refused to meet with him.
We're going to charge you with a 78-page or 80-page indictment on Monday morning, and we're going to indict your wife. So this has never been given full airing. And part of what I'd like to say about his credibility is, let's remember, Michael Cohen, on July 2nd, 2018, decided to tell the truth. Since that day, he has been under oath before congressional committees, before the intelligence committees, before prosecutors. He went into a grand jury just recently. Uh, under oath, has never once, not once, has anyone said there's a fact untrue about all that testimony. And he's been so vindicated, the Attorney General of New York depended on his testimony to bring a civil case of fraud against Donald Trump. So everything that you quoted, Mr. Tacopina, who I know from other venues, yeah. uh, he uses adjectives and attack words. I know lawyers, when they use attack words and they don't use facts, it means they don't have facts. Not a single fact has undermined anything that Michael Cohen has said under oath, in contrast to Mr. Trump, who refuses to show up. And when he is under oath, he takes the Fifth Amendment. There's another one that I think is people don't think about enough, and this is the, uh, the false statements to the U.S. Congress. Now, yep. those were not about uh, Stormy Daniels, right? Those were actually about... A, tr uh, a, a Trump Tower or, or Trump. Uh, again, Can you explain that. Facts get in the way of rhetoric. Yeah. A false statement to Congress is a serious crime. Yeah. Number one, he was directed to make those false statements by Donald Trump. And what were they about? They were it about. Was, this is the uh, absurdity of uh, the uh, assertion that it's a crime. Yeah. So he was having conversations, negotiations about building Trump Tower in Moscow. Right. Trump said to him, I don't want you to say that during the campaign. I want you to lie and say there are no discussions. Even while there were discussions. So Michael said there were three discussions rather than 10. Now, let me repeat that. That's the false statement called a crime that will undermine his credibility with the jury. Trump tells him to lie, and he had three, which is what he said, rather than 10, which is what happened. Yeah. That's the crime. And it's done at the instruction and for the benefit of, not Michael Cohn, Donald Trump. Every juror who's going to be sitting in the jury box is going to ask the question Did Donald Trump pay the money? to hush up Stormy Daniels, because right before the election, he, he was worried about the effect on the electorate if that came out. That's the only question a jury is going to be deciding. And by the way, as much as I say Michael Cohen can be trusted and is credible based on this record I just laid out for you, Michael Cohen isn't needed in this case. All of these pundits and pontificators and lawyers who uh, are speaking on TV, especially another rival network, have no clue what the evidence is in this case. I'm in the room. I know what the evidence is. They don't. So they're speculating, and they have no idea that this case is surrounded by documents, evidence, and facts. I think this case is extremely strong. I hear people say it's a weak case. It's because they have no clue, no facts. They're just speculating. You, you mentioned Mr. Berman, um, and, and, and you did mention that he has this chapter in his book where he talks about getting a call from William Barr, who we do know was acting as a fixer for Donald Trump and as attorney general at the same time, lied about the Mueller report, et cetera. But what you said sounds like you're alleging some intimidation tactics against Mr. Berman and maybe against Mr. Cohen as well. Well, no, no question that Mr. Berman wrote that in a book. He waited a little long to talk about what was a basically criminal obstruction of justice, even if the attorney general does it, when he calls a U.S. attorney and tries to interfere in a case. And something was amiss in the prosecutors not allowing Michael Cohen to come in and talk, even on the Friday before the Monday they threatened to indict him. I know as a lawyer, we called after and said, can we come in and present you with new evidence on Mr. Trump? And the criminal lawyer that I was working with said, 
the first time in his career, the Southern District prosecutor said, no, we don't want your information. And they dropped everything. And the only person prosecuted who went to jail right. in the whole Trump organization was Michael Cohn. Jeffrey Berman gave us the answer. There was pressure from Washington and that call from the attorney general. There were other involvements from Washington that interfered in the administration of justice. I would love to see the inspector general of the Justice Department investigate what happened in that time period when Trump was interfering and targeting Michael Cohen. And he was then um, he was released from jail due to covid um, and then was put back in, or at least there was a threat to reincarcerate. What was that behind that? Great that I can get into this. So this is now a federal judge who was told by the Justice Department, by the same prosecutors that coerced him into these uh, guilty pleas, filed papers and said, we're sending him back to prison because he refused to sign a paper, but it had nothing to do with the fact that he was writing a book about Trump. The judge heard the evidence, and the judge said what was told to me by the federal government prosecutors was not true. That's a nice way of saying lying. He was sent back to prison out of vengeance to force him to sign a paper that he wouldn't write a book, and the judge ordered him out of prison. People in the Southern District of New York and the Bureau of Prisons had to have been embarrassed, and Mr. Berman tells us how, why that happened. It had to come from somebody in Washington. It sounds like what the, the sort of case that you're making is that there is an attempt to sort of dirty Michael Cohen up, or, or to you that the things that he did, he did for Trump. Um, and they're trying to now use that as the thing that undermines his credibility. Um, the, the fact is they're going to still continue to do this. Um, but there's also preparations being made for security around Donald Trump uh, potentially being tried in New York. Are you concerned? Is your client concerned about his security? He's absolutely concerned since the moment he decided on July 2nd, 2018. He has been, uh, his family has been through a lot of pain. He worries about his own personal security and his family security. If and when there's an indictment, he will have even more pressure on him. But can I just return to the topic as I watch these pundits on these cable stations who don't have a clue what the evidence is and talk about Michael Cohen's credibility problems when not a single fact is contradicted. All of his sworn testimony, he's never taken the fifth. The most important moment in the hearing before Elijah Cummings, and I was so moved to watch him again, uh, was when, I think it was Jim Jordan, the... uh, symbol of truth in the Republican Party, who was accusing Michael Cohen of being a liar and over and over again apologizing for Trump. At one point, and we knew it was coming, I kind of tapped Michael on the back sitting behind him. You sort of saw me sitting behind him in that hearing. And that was the moment. And Michael said the following, and I would love to leave this message with your uh, viewers as they listen to these people who know nothing talk about his credibility. Michael said to Jim Jordan, I know what you're doing, Congressman. I know what you're doing, apologizing for Trump and attacking me as being a liar. I know what you're doing because you know why? I did it for Trump for 10 years. And that's what Trump, that's his playbook. And now the playbook is aimed at Michael Cohen. And guess what? Facts matter. It won't matter in the courtroom other than the facts the jury hears. Lanny Davis, thank you very much. Thank Appreciate you, you taking thank some you, time Joy. to talk Great to, to see you in person. Great to see you in person as well. All right. And of course, Michael Cohen uh, will be joining my colleague Chris Hayes on All In right after the readout. So we will continue to talk about this. Obviously, lots to talk about here. All right. Thank you again. All right. Well, good old MAGA still trying to make attorneys get attorneys as a federal judge orders Trump attorney Evan Corcoran to testify in the classified documents investigation. We'll bring you the latest after this.
Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. The Ides of March are coming for the former president. Earlier today, Chief Judge Beryl Howell of the U.S. District Court in D.C. partially granted a request from U.S. prosecutors to force Trump lawyer Evan Corcoran to testify before a grand jury. Corcoran's testimony is related to the former president's possession of classified documents after leaving office. The request was made when prosecutors sought a crime fraud exception to his testimony. A lawyer can be forced to divulge private conversations with a client if the client is seeking advice in furtherance of a crime. This is an unusual move, but it suggests that Jack Smith's prosecutors provided significant evidence that Trump did in fact do that. Corcoran, who has already appeared before the grand jury, had previously testified to federal officials that Trump had returned all classified materials after they searched Mar-a-Lago, looking for documents that they had sought to recover for more than a year, a claim that was proven to be false. The Washington Post is reporting that Trump's legal team, the ones who have yet to allegedly commit a crime on his past, are expected to ask incoming chief U.S. District Judge James Bozberg, who succeeds the term-limited how as of midnight Saturday, to stay the order while they appeal. Joining me now is Jill Weinbanks, who served as an assistant Watergate special prosecutor. She's the co-host of the Sisters-in-Law and iGen podcast. Uh, and Jill, I do want to ask you to, uh, it's great to see you, I want to ask you to comment on that, the fact that uh, this lawyer, Mr. Corcoran, they have seemed to breach the attorney-client privilege to get him to testify. What do you think the significance of that is when it comes to the Jack Smith investigation? It's important. First of all, there are a couple of things that he could be uh, a witness to. One is a phone call that he had with Trump, and the other is instructions he gave to Christina Bob to sign an affidavit that said there had been a diligent search and that all of the documents had been turned over. And she actually cleverly added some language to that saying, based on information that I have been given, because she didn't do the search, Corcoran did the search. So he could be responsible for a deliberate falsification of information, and that could get him into criminal trouble himself, not just in helping his client. Um, and he would be the second lawyer on the Trump team who has had this happen. Eastman had the same thing where the judge concluded that he and Trump had probably, uh, more likely than not, committed a crime together. And that's one of the only ways that you can force a lawyer to give up the confidential information provided. It is something that every lawyer knows and that every client should know. So there's no big deal. And Donald Trump's defense uh, claiming that this is 
a terrible thing is just nonsense. I, I want to actually play. Uh, no, you know, what, let me let me play this one. I, I want to because Trump is facing like all of these sort of multiple potential cases that are all kind of building and brewing at the same time. But the one that appears ready to sort of bloom first is this New York case about the the, the payment to Stormy Daniels. Um, and I want to play this. This is from June 25, 1973. You will remember this clip. This is John Dean testifying before Congress about what he told then President Richard Nixon. I told him that I thought he should know that I was also involved in the post-June 17th activities regarding the Watergate. I briefly described to him why I thought I had illegal, legal problems and that I had been a conduit for many of the decisions that were made and therefore could be involved in an obstruction of justice. He would not accept my analysis and did not want me to get into it in any detail other than what I have just related. He reassured me not to worry that I had no legal problems. And, and he later went on, John Dean, to plead guilty for he, he aspired for aspiring to obstruct justice in the cover up and served a sentence, went to prison. He got one to four years. Yet he was the chief would have been the chief witness had Richard Nixon been prosecuted. So what do you make of this attempt to say that Michael Cohen, who caught a jail sentence for helping Donald Trump do this cover up, you know, it seems odd to say that he wouldn't be a good key witness because John Dean would have been the key witness. That's a great question, Joy. And it is absolutely true that in most white collar crimes or mob crimes, the people who testify against the defendant are co-conspirators. It's not a bank robbery where you happen to be a, a patron in the bank who witnesses someone pull out a gun and say, give me your money. That isn't what kind of witnesses you have. You only have witnesses who know because they participated in the crime. Right. And no one was more credible than John Dean. He really, he made no mistakes in the facts. And frankly, uh, no one has questioned Cohn's accuracy in the things that he has said. They are attacking him for having been convicted of a lie. And your interview with his lawyer, Lonnie Davis, clearly shows how they are defending him against those kind of accusations. Right now, who looks more credible to you? John Dean, Cohen, or Donald Trump? I will tell you for sure, the loser is Donald Trump. Yeah. Uh, and the third thing is, you know, and Melissa Murray, the great Melissa Murray, making attorneys get attorneys. Like, these are all attorneys we're talking about on both sides of these uh, these accusations. Another attorney, and uh, his name is Joe Tacopina, who has been on the attack against Michael Cohen. But here's a challenge for him representing Trump. He previously talked to Stormy Daniels or stage name Stormy Daniels about representing her. Um, NYU law professor Ryan Goodman points that out and that there is uh, New York state's has ethics rules that would say it would be difficult to see how he can represent Trump should there be a trial after he has attacked Stormy Daniels and, and sort of tried to sort of undercut her credibility. But he talked about potentially representing her. What do you make of all of that? It's well, I mean, anybody who saw his interview by Ari Melber knows, I, I, how can I say this nicely, that he's a clown, that he's a joke. Grabbing for the evidence was, I've never seen anything like that. Saying it's not a lie because it wasn't under oath. No, perjury is under oath. Lies are lies. If I tell you a lie, it's a lie. It doesn't have to be under oath. So his, his character and his ethics are clearly at, at issue here. And I think that if you have represented 
someone on the other side. You cannot represent the other person. You yeah. just can't. This is, really, you know, it, it reminds me of advice I got early on in my career as a defense lawyer, which was sometimes the law is on your side. You argue the law. Sometimes it's the facts. You argue the facts. And sometimes both are against you. You pound the table. <laughs> that was it. He was pounding the table. Well, real quick, what's your pin before I let you go? I'm actually wearing two because it's Valent- uh, it's St. Patrick's Day. And in Chicago, that's a big deal. And because we're talking about individual number one in the indictment <laughs> phone, I'm wearing a thing that says hashtag one. When I tell you Jill Weinbanks never misses with these pins, uh, thank you so much, Jill, my friend. Appreciate you. Thank you. Have a great, happy St. Patrick's Day. All right, still ahead. Is Ron DeSantis' aloof, angry persona and lack of social skills his Achilles heel? His potential presidential rivals sure think so. More on that when the readout continues after this. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. As Ron DeSantis gears up for a potential run for president, he has one big glaring vulnerability that may not go over too well with potential voters. And and no, it's not the book banning or shutting down drag shows or even using Florida taxpayer money to fly migrants from Texas to Martha's Vineyard. Republican primary voters dig all that. His problem is, well, that he's just downright awkward. We, of course, know about the white knee-high boots that he wore to a photo op after Hurricane Ian last year that quickly became an Internet meme even drawing parallels to the green M&M. But now, in a new report from the Daily Beast, two sources recall some rather unflattering stories about his social skills, particularly his propensity to devour food during meetings. One former staffer equating it to a starving animal who has never eaten before. The article reads, during a private plane trip from Tallahassee to Washington, D.C., DeSantis enjoyed a chocolate pudding dessert by eating it with three of his fingers. Okay, now compared to the fascist blue plate special that he and his Republican legislature are serving up in Florida, it may not seem like much, but it could be the perfect bait for Donald Trump in a presidential primary. And joining me now is Rick Wilson, Republican strategist and co-founder of the Lincoln Project, and Don Calloway, Democratic strategist and founder of the National Voter Protection Action Fund. I don't even know who to go to first. My mind is saying so many things to me right now about where to go, but you have the disadvantage of not being at the table with us right now. So, Rick, I'm going to go to go throw this to you, my friend, because you live in Florida. 
let me tell you, the, the, there's a real rule about campaigns, and it's the, it's, the, it's the candidate with the most charisma tends to win. And whether you like it or not, Donald Trump had more charisma than Hillary. And whether you like it or not, Joe Biden had more charisma than, than Donald Trump in a certain weird kind of funky way. <laughs> and if you're the guy who gets the reputation early in the campaign for being a difficult diva and for eating pudding with three fingers— I can't even tell you that, like, the memes write themselves for this guy. It's going to get, it's never going to get better. He is in a position now where people think he's already awkward and weird, and it'll just get worse and worse. He'll be, he'll get the yips from it, and it'll just <laughs> cascade on itself. There's no natural grace to this guy. There's no, like, there's no, like, charm. You're going to sit this guy down in a diner in New Hampshire with some local county committee man, and, and the guy's going to want to talk about the gold standard for an hour, and Ron DeSantis is going to want to flee. <laughs> or or he'll want to put up three or, fingers and be like, send me some pudding. Because I got yes. three fingers right in already to grub. Uh, that's so gross, though. That's just nasty. Let, let, me, let me ask you, dog, because here's the, the challenge of going against Trump. He has one skill, making up nicknames. Yeah. I mean, you cannot look at Marco Rubio and not think Lil Marco. It's just you can dislike Trump and think he's a fascist and, you know, you'd be right. He is. Yeah. But he's good at that. I mean, Ron DeSantis is short. He wears like high platform shoes to make himself look taller. And they've been photographed. Mm-hmm. Um, he did have the boots moment. Uh, and now he's got the pudding moment. It's like Donald Trump is two ticks away from either making his nickname be pudding or boots. Both of which would be wildly entertaining and acceptable to me. I, <laughs> you know, when I look at uh, first of all, just watch him walk around and then you see the dining stories. I'm sure you grew up with this and I know it well. No home training. Ain't no home training. It's just clearly not there. And that stuff will not appeal when you have to go through the grind of Iowa and New Hampshire and these really folksy people, like Rick says. But I really get nervous about getting caught up in this type of stuff because the easy thing to pivot to is find somebody who fights by Marquis de Sade rules and has Mm -hmm. all of the social graces, but whose policies are more atrocious and more oppressive to black folks and women and everybody else. And I'm looking at you, Glenn Youngkin, right? This is where Nia, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the governor of South Carolina, former governor of South Carolina, has an opportunity to split the gap here, but she's even worse. And she's going to tell us all that she took down the Confederate flag, but the policies are going to be there, and she's going to eat with the proper knife and fork. So Ron DeSantis is a clown by all means, and I look forward to him embarrassing himself even further and giving us more material, but I really like to focus more on, like, why he's actually bad. Well, and the, the thing about it is, Rick, is that, He's done something, and you both can jump in on this. I mean, there are certain things that he's done that are just politically stupid, right? The, the policy, you just had the state Senate in Florida have to fix. I'm actually going to come to you first on this, because you, you, then I'm going to come back to you, Rick. They literally almost got into a war with the Divine Nine. Yes. Because they decided to create a yeah. policy so ugly and so insane yeah. that it would have barred black fraternities and sororities from state-funded college univer- uh, co- uh, colleges, including Florida A&M. Yeah. Well, that's uh, the goal. For, for FAMU. Mm-hmm. That's the goal. That's the goal. And Ron DeSantis is the only governor who has the, you know, the atrocious cojones, if you will, to just go ahead and put it out there. Uh, but that is, by all means, the actual goal is to eradicate a people's history. And so you no longer have to justify slavery or justify why people did these things or say it's not over. You just don't have to prove that it existed at all. Right. If it's not in the history and we don't have to talk about it. And within 25 years, Folks will no longer ask because, by the way, my kids who are in the green room are not getting their information from TikTok. And that's Correct. what makes this stuff especially pernicious. Yeah. And, and Rick, the, the other thing about it is, you know, Nikki Haley's uh, name was called. You can talk about any of these candidates, but all of their 
presentations are dystopian. They're all saying that, uh, you know, America is in the toilet. They're all taking up Donald Trump's sort of view of sort of downing the country and saying that it's it's a it's awful. And, and they only are doing social issues and culture wars. None of them have offered a vision that's beyond that. I don't know how any of them would appeal in a general election. You know, Joy, that's exactly right. These people are, I mean, this is the, the secret of MAGA. It's a dark and paranoid and depressing and pessimistic and weak philosophy. Because they, they, they may beat their chest and do the whole monster truck thing, but the reality is they think that we're weak. They think our country is bad. They think that the things that make this big, crazy country work and go forward are wrong. They want to turn the clock back to this imaginary past that never existed in any reality at all, they want to they want to enter some alternate universe, and it will never work because you know what? The average person out there, they're not worried about wokeism or whatever the <laughs> hell it means. They can't define it, of course. They're not worried about that. They're worried about the economy, their kids' education, their jobs. They're worried about things that matter to their families. And when they see things that threaten their families and hurt their families, um, because you know, like it or not, Ron DeSantis, I'm sorry to tell you. Governor, there are a lot of gay people in the country. Like it or not, there are a lot of African American people in the country, Ron. And you know what? You just banning books, like banning books about Rosa Parks and Hank Aaron in Florida schools because you don't like them, or taking out the fact that Rosa Parks was African American in a school textbook, that's insanity. People will see that. And so the, the darkness and the weirdness altogether is going to make him, I think, very off putting until, of course, Donald Trump tears his liver out and eats it live on stage, and that'll be the end. <laughs> You know, I, I worry, though, Rick, and, and I appreciate that optimistic perspective, but that hasn't worked out for black folks too well over the last 15 years no, of American politics. No, uh, there are a whole lot of folks who agree with Ron DeSantis, and that's why his perspective is particularly dangerous. There's a whole lot of people who don't understand that when he's talking about woke, he's talking about eradicating gay people, African-American rights, women's rights, all of that. That's what woke means. And I think we have to acknowledge that because we didn't acknowledge the threat when Trump came down the escalator in 2015 until it was too late. Yeah. Ron DeSantis is crafting a campaign in that mold. And by the way, when Lead Belly said it in 1938 and when black folks have been saying it ever since I was a kid, it just meant watch your back, keep your eyes open, <laughs> keep your third eye open. When they say it, yes, woke means black. Yes, it does. Let's just be clear. It and does. it means gay. And it means when you anti that, you have told us who you are. And he literally we says are, this is where woke goes to die. That's a I'm frightening just, concept. I'm going to leave it right there because they mean black and gay. Yeah. That's what they mean by woke because they, they don't know what it means. They can't define it. Uh, Rick Wilson and Don Calloway. Thank you both very much. Up next, filmmakers Erica Alexander and Whitney Dow join me to talk about their new debate series at HBCUs based on their recent documentary about reparations. And coming up, we celebrate a very special Women's History Month birthday. We'll be right back. We were so excited when we saw the legislation. In fact, we have used it in presentations that we've made. Wow. I use your outstanding construct. You've been, Councilmember, a real hero, Shiro to me. We could have layers of repair and layers of remedy because, as we know, those damages, yes, were rooted in slavery, but, you know, it looked like discrimination even still today because of the color of our dark skin. The Big Payback is a documentary film about reparations for slavery in America. It premiered nationwide in January. I am one of the executive producers for the full film, full disclosure. The film focuses on Evanston, Illinois, the first U.S. city to fund a plan to distribute reparations to its black residents. 
The filmmakers are now taking that conversation on the road to universities, hosting a series of student-led debates around reparations at every HBCU in North Carolina. Here's a peek of the one hosted by Bennett College. This is such a hot topic for some people, it's radioactive. So who best to talk about it but in educational institutions where they're supposed to tackle the hard subjects. Reparations means funding. It means respect. It means preserving those institutions that make sure our needs were met. What would be your take on emotional reparation and psychological reparation? Where would this money be coming from with a country that's $20 trillion in debt? What are the next steps for Evanston? I am joined now by the big payback directors, actress, producer, and activist Erica Alexander and filmmaker Whitney Dow, my friends. Uh, thank you all for being here. And th this is fascinating. Uh, Erica, I'm going to start with you. When you're in these schools talking about reparations with actual people, students, young people, what are the kinds of questions that they're asking and what are they debating? Well, they're debating reparations and they're debating its effect or maybe its effect on them, their lives, their schools that they go to. We kicked it off at Bennett, which is an all-women's college. It's led by the great Suzanne Walsh there, who's president. And they were in it to win it. And they helped ideate and create the tour and create the whole foundation of it. And so we were trying to replicate um, the Baldwin-Buckley debate in 1965, the great James Baldwin massacred William F. Budley, Buckley in that debate at Cambridge University in England. And they actually asked, what was the American dream effect on the American Negro? So at this point, we're allowing them to choose the question, but they often ask what is how it's going to affect them and their families or their schools. And, you know, Whitney, there there is this like this sort of reticence about the topic of reparations. It's been difficult to even get Congress to deal with it because there is sort of a visceral negative reaction to it. Um, what have you heard um, that has sort of shown that when the students are talking about it? And do you hear that? Do you hear those kind of reticences? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's really interesting. We did a debate. It was great to see Don Calloway wearing a Shaw University sweatshirt in your previous semi because we were at <laughs> Shaw University yesterday. And uh, to, and the students debated the both sides of it. There was two students who debated against reparations, uh, you know, against the idea of reparations, because there's a lot of concern that it somehow um, on, with certain students that it will somehow it, it makes them um it, it, it sort of makes them feel bad, badly that they don't have the same agency in the world they might. They're very sort of self determined. They're, they're really focusing on self-determination and not being and sort of this idea of what they consider might be a handout is something that makes them nervous to think about. You know, it's interesting that you all are doing this in colleges, Erica, at a time when colleges are, have become a real political hotbed of attempts to strip not just K through 12 education of history, including specifically black history. But in Florida, they're going for the colleges, too. They're trying to attack it there as well. Can you even imagine being able to do this debate in a place like Florida? And did you feel that kind of pushback in North Carolina? Well, I just was listening to y'all talk about the atrocities, um, uh, cojones, the atrocious cojones. Was that a, they're putting as if putting down there wouldn't let them do what they're doing now with uh, just having um, AP history on American history. They probably wouldn't do this. Um, we are here in North Carolina, specifically with the North Carolina 10 HBCUs, eight of them 
will um, be doing this because we thought it needed to be at a place where they not only be open to it, not afraid of it, but also they had skin in the game. And so that's why we're here. It's very hard to have these discussions, but it shouldn't be. It should be a place, um, especially universities, that you could talk about the hard things, there's no doubt, but also have feel safe and be free to have conflicting uh, points of view and then come out of it and be friends and uh, move forward. Yeah. And Whitney, you know, we're seeing actually the film came out and it, it, it talked about this Evanston, you know, discreet case of trying to make reparations work there. You're now seeing this conversation in lots of other cities. San Francisco has a program that they're, you know, toying with the idea of doing a pretty major reparations um, sort of program with five million dollar payouts is what the reporting is. What do you make of the way that the debate has actually metastasized um, from the time that you all were making this film? Well, what's really, I mean, what's so great about the film, and, and you know this, Joy, from, from being involved in it, is that the that Robin really showed that the impossible was possible. And so it was almost like, like the dam broke. And as soon as she showed that it actually a community could look at its past honestly, look at the injury it caused those black residents, come up with a plan to make restitution for it, and come out stronger on the back end of it, so many communities said this, this is a model that we can apply. And especially Evanston, which is not, um, doesn't have a, a, an obvious relationship to slavery. Every community has a, has a relationship to the legacy of slavery. And it sort of showed how each community could look at their own situation and figure out how to make amends for their, their particular situation. And Robin Simmons is, of course, the star of the film. She's the person who did this in Evanston. What is her reaction to these debates, Erica? She loves it. She loves it. She's created this thing called firstrepair.org. She's getting a lot of people asking her how she did it. Local communities all over are trying to do it and they need this information. So she's trying to do her her um, her due diligence by putting out information about best practices. But we get a big kick out of it because, you know, for a lot of people who are in this work, it can be so drain draining. And this is fun. You know, we're scooping yeah. ice cream. We've got dairies out there. They're in support of it. They are one of the few companies that have come up in support of a lot of social justice issues, specifically reparations in HR 40. So to go yeah. out there and create a celebration around talking about not only reparations, but social justice issues with young students who have their future in front of them. She loves it. They love her. And yeah. it's a chance to have a dialogue between the present and the future. And where where does it go next, Whitney? Where are you guys going to be next? Well, next, uh, I, on, on Monday, we're going to be at, uh, was it, uh, Johnson and Smith and Livingston College. Tuesday, we're going to be at St. Augustine and uh, 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 AT&T. And then we're going to yes. William Smith College. Yes. So, 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 and, and, and if you go to our website... Uh, the, the bigpaybackmovie.com. There's a whole yep. list of it. So you're in the area. They're open to the community. So we really, what's been really great about it is not just students, community yeah. members have turned out and participated in the, in the events right. as well. Well, hopefully people will come out. Uh, Erica Alexander, Whitney Dow, thank y'all very much. Much appreciated. We'll be right back. On this day in 1933, civil rights icon Merle Evers Williams was born. That makes her 90 years young today. A long, rich life dedicated to racial equality, but also one haunted by tragedy. A white supremacist assassinated her husband, Mississippi's first statewide NAACP field secretary, Medgar Evers, in front of their home in Jackson in 1963. She and her young children witnessed the bloody aftermath. The murder would serve as a catalyst for the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. 
with Murley fighting decades longer to see her husband's killer convicted of murder after two previous all-white male hung juries. Black women played essential roles leading the civil rights movement, something we want to especially highlight this Women's History Month. Murley Evers was one of those crucial figures, embodied by far more than the Southern terrorism that took her husband. She blazed a path toward justice and voting rights through the civil rights era as a civil rights worker in her own right, later serving as the chair of the NAACP and then becoming the first woman and first layperson to give the invocation at a presidential inauguration for America's first black president, President Barack Obama, in 2013. Her incredible legacy was recently honored in a collection of photos and video created by Pomona College, her alma mater. The pain and the scars that come from being my color and living in a segregated society, it's something you don't forget. We are different, but we are human beings. And hopefully, someone who views us will grow to be another strong leader in our country. Happy 90th birthday to my sweet soror and personal inspiration, the great Merle Evers-Williams. And that is tonight's readout. MSNBC is going to be live here all night. Today's news requires more facts. Palestinians and Israelis are blaming each other for the tragedy that has inflamed the region. More analysis. Most of the states with the worst rates of gun deaths are ones where Republicans control the state government. And more perspective. This is not just about women and pregnant people in Texas. This is about people across this country. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more.